Welcome to Good God, Conversations That Matter About Faith and Public Life. I'm your host, George Mason, and I'm delighted to be able to welcome to the program today, Rabbi Dr. Rachel Mikva. Rachel, it's great to have you with us. I'll introduce you here in a moment, but it's a, a real treat to have you on Good God. Thanks so much, George. I'm delighted to be here. Wonderful. Well, for those of you who are joining us uh, for this program, let me say that uh, Rachel is the chair of religious studies at uh, Chicago Theological Seminary and a senior fellow for the Interreligious Institute there. Uh, And she has uh, uh, also been a congregational rabbi. And so she knows her work both from the congregational uh, practice of religion side of things and also from the academic side. And so uh, she brings both of those things uh, into play and all of them converge in a sense in this book uh, that, as I hold it up, uh, is called Dangerous Religious Ideas, the subtitle of which is The Deep Roots of Self-Critical Faith in Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. All right, so there it is. Dangerous Religious Ideas is the main title, provocative, of course. And then the subtitle, which is, I think, kind of a way of qualifying the (laughs) main title. So let's let's talk about uh, that aspect of it before we get deep into the subject itself. How is the title and the subtitle related in your mind? Um, so the title is flows from a conviction, really, that all of our religious ideas are dangerous. And uh, progressive people, progressive, religiously progressive people like to imagine that, oh, our, you know, I've already reformed my religion. My religious ideas aren't dangerous. Reli- dangerous religious ideas are those people's, right? Uh-huh. Somebody else. Right. And, um, uh, and so I, I want everybody to grapple with the tension, right? With the capacity, the, the fact that something that flows out of our deepest religious convictions, not some marginal possibility that we hold off on the side, but even from our deepest convictions, actually also at the same time has the potential to cause somebody harm. And, and we have to be able to grapple with that. So I wanted everybody to pay attention. And that's where the, the, um, the provocative title comes from the red cover. That was the publisher. <laughs> I think that <laughs> contributes to the idea that, you know, it's a screed against religion, that's but, right. um, but I am in my scholarly life. Uh, what I study is the way that scriptures have been interpreted and embodied over time. Right? So in, in the Academy, we would call that history of exegesis, right? That's what I do. That's what I study. And it's clear to me that when you look at the history of that interpretation and the embodiment of those interpretations, that religion is always both a source for blessing and has this potential for harm. And, you know, my training as a, as a rabbi is very much in a dialectical tradition, right? always holding these truths in tension one with another and sort of using that tension to find our way. And so that's where the title and subtitle kind of come together to, to do that, that, uh, that work. Well, I think that people who are uh, 
even faithful and regular in congregational worship and, and study, uh, have a, a conviction regardless of where they fall on the ideological spectrum, whether a more conservative or more uh, progressive, uh, they, they do have a sense that uh, the, the scripture is foundational for them in terms of their faith tradition. And even those who claim that it is authoritative and maybe even the word of God itself, uh, when, you, when you actually ask them about particular texts, uh, there's, there's an interesting thing that happens in, in my experience, right? You'll have people who will say things like, well, you can't interpret the Bible uh, the way you want to. You have to take it all or you have to reject it all because it's God's word and it's therefore, you know, absolutely uh, authoritative. And then you, you ask them something like, you know, Jesus said, if your eye offends you, pluck it out. Or if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. And you don't see anybody plucking out their own eye or cutting off their own hand. They read that and then they say, well, that's, that's obviously hyperbole or some such thing. And right there, they're already doing something of self-critical faith that is an interpretive exercise to qualify this dangerous nature of a text. Huh? Right. Absolutely. And, and we do this in all of our religions is, I think, actually part of your point, right, is that in, although you cover the three Abrahamic religions, uh, this is actually true uh, even, I think, uh, for example, uh, I've recently become more and more acquainted with uh, the Sikh tradition, uh, the Sikh religion, and they move from kind of an original emphasis on fighting and swords as an act, uh, and knives and all of that as right. an act of defending uh, people for the sake of justice to making that more of a figurative uh, sort of understanding of fighting. And, and so there's a sense in which we've all done this in our religions, haven't we? So can you talk more about that? Sure. I mean, I think one of the things that I'm trying to demonstrate um, is not only are we doing that currently, but we've always done that, right? Yeah. And that even if we believe that this is the word of God that we're holding in our hands, it's always been an interpreted text right. and the traditions. And the reason I wrote about these three are that these are the three I know enough about to write about them. Um, the others I, you know, I dabble in, in learning about the beautiful manifold um, uh diversity of, of spiritual life stances, but much um, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, I know enough about as a scholar to write about. Um, uh, so first, sticking with scripture as an example, for instance, first I talk about what the dangers are, right? As long as, even for those of us who don't necessarily feel that we're holding God's explicit word in our hand, but rather a human um, record of the efforts to hear the voice of God um, and the teaching of the divine. Um, people will wield the word against one another to justify their own worldview. You know, not only do I think you're wrong, God says you're wrong, or the scripture says you're wrong. And we'll need to reckon with voices that are left out of the canon 
Um, but it is an eternally relevant text, right? That continues to guide and inspire and move us to do what is what we believe to be right. So, um, in you know, in the past, scripture uh, was believed to be you know the divine word explicitly, but there was always an awareness of multivocality in scripture and in its interpretation. So if you think about it, um, the gospels themselves in the canon, right? It's the gospel according to, and you tell the same story multiple times, but it's not exactly the same because right. it was experienced a little differently in each voice. If you, um, in, uh, in, in Muslim tradition, in, in Islamic tradition, there's a, uh, an idea that, that Muhammad received the Quran in seven ahruf, seven variants or versions, right? And um, and that the miraculous nature of the Quran is that they all are really teaching the same thing, but at the same time, we're able to speak directly to particular context peoples. Um, and, you know, the fact is that they knew in the early stages that there were variants in these in what was beginning to be written as a text and somehow this was the way they understood that that multiplicity um you know judaism sort of valorizes multiplicity you know these and these are the words of the living god um but uh in addition to that you also have uh in the traditions going way back a strong um insistence that we should be somewhat humble about our, our belief that we understand God's intent. Um, uh, Nicholas of Cusa, uh, you know, borrowing terms from Augustine, talked about this learned ignorance. Um, you know, I tell doctoral students, by the way, this is what I tell them, that what you get, what you learn as a doctoral student is how much you don't know, right? Uh. That, that, that's advanced learning. Mm-hmm. Um, but humility about the limits of our understanding, especially when it comes to the divine, that's deeply embedded in all of our traditions. Mm-hmm. Um, there's also a, a profound um, awareness that what uh, of the provisional nature of truth, that what faith is about is not certainty. These are truths to live by. This does not have to be an absolute. The, the mystery of it is the capacity to guide one, one's life by faith. Um, and um, they also, it, all through the tradition, um, also value doubt as part of faith, not as the opposite of it, but, but as the piece that keeps you growing and keeps you learning and keeps you searching and keeps you awake. And, you know, when we become complacent in our faith, then our faith begins to shrivel a little bit. Um, and the other thing, and this surprises people, is there's actually a deep consciousness of historical change. I mean, we imagine that that's a modern awareness, but, it, but, but they understood historical change and its impact on the meaning of scripture. My favorite example of this comes from Jewish tradition where um, Moses is imagined to be sitting in Rabbi Akiba's classroom. So Rabbi Akiba is an early rabbinic figure from the first century CE and, uh, you know, so this is a, a fabulous story where Moses shows up in the classroom, but he has to sit in the back because he's not a particularly good student. He doesn't understand what they're talking about. 
Um, so uh, he's getting more and more confounded by what they're teaching. And finally, one of the students further up says, you know, Rabbi Kiba, how do you know this? And Rabbi Kiba says, it's from Moses on Mount Sinai. Right. And and Moses, of course, feels better. And the story goes on because it's very complex and has multiple dialectical layers of what it's trying to get at. But in this moment, it's saying there could be it, it could be simultaneously true that this is an authentic continuation of the Sinaitic revelation mm-hmm. and completely unrecognizable. The guy who was standing there on Sinai, right, right, right. right? right. And I love I mean, that that consciousness of historical change is is deeply, again, embedded throughout the traditions. And we have this weird assumption that that what we think something means, it's always meant that. Hmm. Right. And that's just not it's not the case. You know, I think I come from a tradition, Baptists, that uh, have a sense that our duty uh, it, as a church, and as theologians in the Baptist tradition, is to try to get back to the New Testament understanding of the church, and that we're we're always sort of almost leapfrogging from our time back to that time in order to understand what is the pure truth of things that before it got. Uh, sort of diluted across time and culture and all of that, if we could only reclaim that original. Uh, but it's uh, an elusive goal, isn't it? I mean, it, <laughs> and, and in fact, it creates all sorts of problems of its own. Uh, so th- there's, a, there's a sense uh, where uh, Judaism wrestled with this and, and, and what you're talking about in the story of Rabbi Akiva is partly you know, this, this sense of the oral Torah, right, that has come up from the written Torah, and that there are varying uh, ideas within Judaism of how authoritative the oral Torah is, right? It depends on what denomination or outlook you have about that. But there's a kind of inevitability, I think it's what you're saying, about our interpreting these texts in any given time and place, and recognizing that that's actually not unfaithful. It's the only way you can actually uh, have a religious community is to acknowledge that process and then be self-critical about it. Right. And I, I, you know, I, I, I appreciate the interest in going back to recover this kind of pure teaching that we feel somehow tradition has muddied, right? Um, and obviously the Protestant, the Reformation is a big drive around that. And there are multiple denominations within Protestant Christianity that are still trying to do that in various ways. And, and often, you know, really inspiring drivers for that work, right? How do, you know, can we get rid of the, is there a less patriarchal, you know, right. message coming from Jesus if we get rid of a patriarch, you know, a millennium of a patriarchal tradition? Um, but, but I feel like tradition has just like religion has, because these are bound up with one another, um, both added to the good stuff, right? And, and problematized things or, or made things more problematic. Um, so, for instance, um, you know, both Jesus and the rabbis um, 
clarify what what it is believed that scripture is saying when it says eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Mm-hmm. Right? The rabbis say that it had that what 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 the Torah was teaching was actually restorative justice. Right. You don't poke the guy's eye out. Right. You compensate the victim for the loss of the eye, for, for healing, you know, costs of, of medical care, for any permanent earning loss, for pain and suffering, right? There are five criteria for which the mission is quite clear. This is how you do an eye for an eye, and it's all about restorative justice. Um, and, you know, Jesus was similarly trying to say, well, you know, th- don't think about it this way, think about it this way in a more restorative um, uh, kind of way. And, you know, without those teachings of later tradition, of a Torah teaching, you know, it could look like a brutal yes. kind of, dangerous. of scripture, a very dangerous, right, a very dangerous religious idea. So tradition has done a lot of good stuff. Uh, in terms of helping us think about distilling out the dangerous stuff and trying to rescue the 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 parts that are the force for blessing in the world. Um, but it's also added layers that can be problematic too. Sometimes it, you know the same the same traditional idea can do that. So um, in in Islamic tradition, there's a concept of nas which is right abrogation. So an older religious idea could be, whether it be something that Muhammad received via revelation could be overwritten by a later revelation, right? Um, But so too could an older scripture be overridden. So too could an older tradition be overridden. So, So at the same time that it made room for progress, it was also used as a tool of supersession over the previous tradition. Um, uh, uh, in Christianity, accommodation kind of gets used the same way, right? Both for very good things, mm-hmm. right? That, that um, sacrifice was about, you know, what the people needed at the time. And we don't need to do that anymore. We can, we understand different ways we can approach the divine. And so we, so that's set aside. So right. that's great, right? But at the same time, the ideas about accommodation were also used to supersede Judaism. So, um uh, so again, tradition's a mixed bag, just like religion is. Well, if we have a moment, we're going to get back to supersessionism. I think that's another topic in, in your study. But I think before we do, let's get on to another religious idea that is dangerous in all of our traditions. And, and that is the, uh, the idea of chosenness or election. Uh, when you have a sense of a people who understand themselves as a people, the very idea of a people of faith that is a covenant community of some sort around a religious idea or experience, uh, then, then you, you, you almost inevitably have both the blessing of this unifying binding force that religion is, but also the tendency to otherness, which uh, makes people outside of it. So talk a little bit about how in our three traditions, this idea of chosenness or election has played out as a dangerous idea that is also mitigated in various ways. <laughs> you ask little questions. Yeah. So yes. the, whole, the whole subject, right? Right. I think it's like a hundred pages in the book. It's a big right. section. Um, 
Well, first, I again, I start with, well, what what's really at core dangerous about this? And I come down to two things. You named one of them. That's othering, right? The way that we, if we're going to create a community, that's great. But there is a complementary problematic element that of that, which is whoever's not inside the community is outside. And the way that human beings tend to think about people who are outside or other or different. Um, you know, and our scriptures make it really clear how easy it is for human beings to do this, right? So um, you look at uh, um, the beginning of Exodus and all Pharaoh has to say about those people who had been, you know, welcome guests in the, in the country uh, is, oh, there's so many of them now. <laughs> you know, what if our enemies came and they became a fifth column? Or if you look at the book of Esther, and all Haman has to say is, you know, those people, those Jews, they don't actually, they have different laws. They're, they're different and it doesn't really serve your purposes to suffer them. That's what he says to King Ahasuerus. So it's awfully easy to other people. And we, we unfortunately readily load difference, readily load judgment onto difference, right? So it's not just different than, it's greater than or less than, right? So um, that's a problem in the way that human beings think. That's not a religious problem. Um, but because religion is so good at building communities, um, uh, it magnifies the problem. Uh, and the other danger that I name is conquest. We can look at the history of, of chosenness and the way that an election and the ways that it has justified conquest. Um, so again, there are all kinds of ways in which the traditions themselves have grappled with this. So in Jewish tradition, for instance, there's from Deuteronomy, horrible instructions about essentially genocide against, against the Canaanites when taking the land. And it's clear from archaeological evidence that that never happened, but it's still there as a commandment. <clears throat> but um, the rabbis teach that um, when the Assyrian Empire conquered northern Israel and the Babylonians, Babylonians came in to, to conquer Judah, even in that first wave of the Assyrian Empire, the way that the Assyrians dealt with people was to move them all out of their land so that they had no sense of being home, no land to reclaim. They weren't home there. They weren't there um, and moved other people in. So they mixed up all of the ancient tribes uh, under the Assyrian Empire. And the rabbis say, you know, Sennacherib, there are no more Canaanites because Sennacherib mixed them all up. Um, so these teachings in Torah are completely irrelevant. Um, so there is a recognition of certain kinds of dangers um, uh, in the way that stories were told in scripture, right? The way that we other people, the justifications for conquest. Um, but there is this need in, in all of our traditions um, that have a, a God-centered um, theology. It, that's a little redundant, but to recognize that not all spiritual life stances have a God, but ours do. And there's a need to believe that God is invested in what we're doing, right? We're trying to shape our lives, our world in response to what we understand of the divine call. Mm -hmm. And God should, you know, we, we have to believe that God has a stake in this. So the, 
So the tendency to think about chosenness, election, um, the ways that our actions do matter to God, or, or itty bitty little human actions matter to God, uh, is wrapped up with this, um, the, the theologies of chosenness and election. And, um, and there are, again, beautiful things that draw from it, which you started to also name, but they can become problematic in the way that we other folks and uh, and I do, I go through a long, you know, various examples in history of, of how that unfolded, but also the things that our tradition names, that our traditions name as problematic about it um, and, and how to try to tease our way between those. So Christianity uh, took this idea of chosenness or election and turned it into uh, something that really has to do with salvation. Uh, that for, for Christian Christianity, that turn uh, was, was really uh, important, partly because it was a way for Christianity to account for Gentiles coming out of uh, Judaism and said, you know, that this is a way we can universalize, in a sense, but in doing so, it also established a kind of notion that the whole of chosenness or election is really about salvation rather than uh, what Judaism might say about it or what another uh, religion like Islam might say about it. And then we impose that on everyone else. So the point is always whatever our point is, right? And, and so it, it seems to me that so Christianity has has be, had to wrestle with this, like the other religions. Uh, th there's an exclusivist point of view, and then there's an, an inclusive point of view, and then there's maybe a pluralist point of view. This is a way that we've tried to to come about that. That is, it's only us, you know. And if you want to get in on this, come and be like us. Or is there a way for it to be true that actually? includes more people, whether they know it or not, uh, or the more pluralist view, there may be many ways, right, uh, to get there. Uh, there seems to be something, Rachel, in all of our religions that has to grapple with how does God account for our particularity, but also include other people who don't share that tradition? Uh, that seems to be a, an important move toward a more mature faith uh, that mitigates some of these dangerous ideas, wouldn't you say? Yes, I do. At the same time that this book, I, I deliberately tried to make it speak to exclusivists as well as inclusivists, as well as pluralists, right? It doesn't matter if you hold God's own truth in your hand, you still require self-critical faith in order to make sure that you as much as possible, do good things with that truth and not and not things that are harmful to your to your fellow human beings or your world. And um, and so, I mean, the book I'm working on now, which is an introduction to interreligious engagement, which is for a lot of undergraduate and graduate classes, um, in you know thinking about uh, how we navigate religious difference in constructive ways, um, has a whole chapter on 
and, and people have written books, obviously, from single traditions, much less multiple traditions. But but the book has a chapter on um, what I end up calling parody pluralism um, because I used to try to distinguish theological pluralism from a sort of a generic uh, commitment to active engagement across religious difference, right? That, that it, and so the interreligious space has lots of room for people who are not plural, who are not theological pluralists, right? Who believe in that they're going to heaven and nobody else is unless they belong to their tribe, um, but uh, but who are still committed to while we're living in this world together, we need to get along. We need to use our spiritual commitments to do good in the world, right? So there are plenty of people who can make that commitment, but not a theological pluralist commitment, right? Some way in which God understands and celebrates the multiplicity. Um, and, uh, and so I want to cultivate that those capacities, no matter where people are on the theological spectrum. Anyway, I stopped calling it theological pluralism when one can understand God as, as, helping to fashion and to, and to sustain and celebrates the, the great diversity of religions. Um, when I realized that I was also trying to make space in this conversation for non-theistic traditions. Right. So <laughs> how do I do that? So I ended up calling it parity pluralism as opposed to um, the pluralism project at Harvard university, you know, tries to recognize that pluralism doesn't require a theological conviction of, for God wanting there to be religious difference. Um, but I, I mean, I am a, a parody pluralist, right? I am delighted uh, to meet and learn from people around who have different life stances um, who are even, you know, let me, let me say that a little differently. I am delighted to learn and be with them and believe in the value of their path for them, right? Um, at the same time that often meeting them also illuminates my own path, right? It's not that, that I want to, to walk the walk that they're walking, but what they teach and, and believe about something will capture my spirit and find its language in my own faith. Um, so- A really important point about the interreligious aspect uh, it is it is how it's a mirror to us, isn't it? Uh, it, it? It really forces us, if, if we are doing it right, if we're not just trying to convert uh, someone in that conversation, it can, it can reveal those places in us that maybe we've forgotten about or that we've neglected yeah. and, and recognize that there's something uh, we need to reckon with in our own faith. Yeah, a lot of times people are... Um, yeah. Some people are afraid of interreligious engagement that it will somehow weaken their faith. And, and those of us who work in that space a lot realize, no, it doesn't happen like that at all. It, it deepens our faith, right? It, right. It, 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 again, you know, awakens and keeps us from being complacent about what it is we think. We have to explain ourselves to somebody and suddenly we have to um, uh, think about it harder than we used to. One of my favorite examples is um, uh, a Vaishnava Hindu student was coming to study at our seminary, and she was in the first week of the history of Christian thought. And 
um, the professor was teaching about Paul and she grew up in India. So even as a Vaishnava Hindu in America, she might have heard of Paul, but she'd never heard of Paul. She raised her hand. She said, who's Paul? It was like the best class ever, right? right, right. Because everybody had to stop and think, wait, well, how, who's Paul to me, right? How do I explain yeah. Paul to somebody who has no context for it? And it was just great. Well, this is, this is a good place for us to put a pin in this conversation and come back and have another one that we're going to do another episode on because you've already introduced us to the interreligious space and the idea of a parody pluralism. And we're going to come back and talk more about that in our cultural milieu uh, of democracy and, and religion in America. So, uh, Rabbi Rachel Mikva, thank you for being on Good God. Thank you for this conversation about dangerous religious ideas in these Abrahamic traditions and the need for a self-critical faith. Uh, we are grateful for all your work and the contributions you make to help make us better. Thanks so much. God is created by Dr. George Mason, produced and directed by Jim White. Social media coordination by Cameron Vickery. Good God, Conversations with George Mason is the podcast devoted to bringing you ideas about God and faith and the common good. All material copyright 2022 by Faith Commons.